Well, welcome back to the podcast where we discuss the plausibility of sci-fi concepts with experts. I'm your host, Heidi Compo, and today we're going to be exploring the science behind soldier augmentation in the movie Elysia. Joining us is Dr. Justin Clifford, who is a tactical physical therapist working with military special warfare operators. Stay with us to the end when Dr. Clifford tackles our burning question. Will soldiers of tomorrow be human or cyborg? So without further ado, let's be ready for another mind-blowing episode of Reality Check. All decks, prepare for hyperdrive. Activate tractor beam. Disengage tractor beam. Right, we're ready for light speed. No, 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 light speed is too slow. All right, reality check. The science of fiction. So, some of you have probably seen the 2013 dystopian sci-fi action thriller starring Matt Damon and Jodie Foster. It is currently trending on Netflix right now, and after you guys are tuning into this episode, you'll have a good idea why, because there are lots of relevant things going on in that movie that are... I'm not going to give any spoilers, but let's just say that this is going to be one of those episodes that might be bordering a little bit more on the plausibility scale. But before we dive into all that, I am going to give you guys a disclaimer. I am, for those of you watching, I am living in a Holiday Inn Express right now. So there might be a little bit of background noise, but I am faithful and confident that my producer, Hugh, will be able to clean it up. Um, before we jump into that, do you actually want to hear the funny story about how I uh, found my producer? Yeah, sure. Go for it. So I'm a big fan of the Space Nuts podcast. And if you guys haven't listened to it, it's super fun. So Space Nuts, Space Time, and Astronomy Daily are some of those ones that I've been listening to a lot. And then when I was recently out at Kennedy Space Center for the NASA Crew 7 launch, I'm wearing my NASA Crew 7 t-shirt. Um, I got invited to go out there and just do some media stuff for the for the launch. Um, I I met Miss USA there, Miss United States. She is beauty. She is grace. She is Miss United States. And and while I was going there, I posted on their Facebook page. I was like, hey, Space Nuts, does anybody want me to ask any of the subject matter experts or anybody anything on behalf of the Space Nuts group? And they were like, can you get someone famous to say I'm a Space Nut? <laughs> so I had... Miss United States say, I'm a space nut. And they thought that was the coolest thing ever. They were like, that's so cool. You're the coolest person. And I was like, so maybe you guys can give my podcast a thumbs up. And they were like, we love your podcast idea. And so that's how it all like happened. So it's like kind of really, really cool and serendipitous that that's fun. Um, a podcast that I love to listen to, Space Nuts, we sort of like became, I guess, friends through this whole weird like space NASA continuum and now uh they also produce my show so that's how i found um hugh is his name they're in australia with bites.com and that's the story of how i got a producer so that's that was kind of like a little bit of a side quest to start the show off with but let's uh let's welcome justin to the show so justin thank you so much for um coming on to reality check and i'm just so excited to have you here today so tell me uh just kind of some of your initial thoughts with elysium um uh, the film itself, you know, it's came around, in the context, came around popularity around the same time, like Jason Bourne type stuff, right? So I got the impressions like, how can we have Jason Bourne fight robots in space? Like, I feel like that was part of the pitch for this movie. But um, yeah, it's it covers a lot of ground from a standpoint of um, like space travel, social dystopia, whatever. Uh, but also getting into like some of these um, body augmentation, your neuroprosthetics and and other components that they use as plot devices to basically make super soldiers um, while also having robot super soldiers um, and space. And so, yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff going on. Um, I'm not going to comment on like, you know, plot <laughs> or the holes thereof, um, but uh, the... The suit in particular, the exoskeleton that they hook up um, Matt Damon's character with, I think, was probably the biggest thing that you wanted to talk about on this, uh, and the feasibility of what something like that would look like for our future military. Um, so, yeah, what what's, uh, what questions do you have on that topic? Oh, man. Well, I feel like we've really come so far in human history with prosthetics, and that's something I want to hear your your insight on. But it's it's interesting to see like what they did with Matt Damon's character because 
you know, I, I give, I, you know, these episodes are full of spoilers. So it's like, if you haven't seen it yet, maybe you watch the shows before you listen to the podcast because we talk about everything. But he goes through this accident, which weakens him. And then he has to get sort of souped up so that he can go through and do this task and fight the bad guys and save the planet and everything. Um, and I just am really curious about I don't know if you could tell me some of the history of prosthetics and augmentation that sort of led up to where we're at now. Because I think the early days, it was just like you had a peg leg and it wasn't even attached to you in any way. And now we've really evolved to to things where there's less of a gradient. There's more of a gradient um, that's harder to distinguish between machine and man. Yeah. Yeah. so as far as the history of prosthetics, I'm mean, just speaking to the fact that I'm not a prosthetist, right? Like that's it, my job is not making prosthetics for folks, but you can see evidence of prosthetics going back. I want to say even back into like the ancient Egyptians, like we found like, you know, prosthetic toe, um, you know, carved out of wood that was like strapped into a sandal for somebody. And you can go medieval examples where they had like art- even articulated hands. Um, and a lot of those designs actually haven't changed dramatically for the most part for gen pop, right? So if we're applying this to most people who are just needing these to get through with their day-to-day life activities of daily living, um, a lot of the designs, like they're, they're pretty clever and they haven't had to be upgraded that much except from like a material standpoint um, and maybe like a manufacturing standpoint. So, you know, like the, the, the claws that can open this way as well as grasp this way for hand prosthetics. Um, foot prosthetics, we're, we're playing around with materials to get like a better elastic return out of the foot. If you've seen like, uh, you know, Oscar Pistorius was recently released from prison, I think. Um, he was the, the, the blade runner. You know, he had those carbon fiber blades that he was running on uh, during the Paralympics. Um, stuff like that is, is slowly becoming more mainstream within uh, general population as well. Um, and where we've seen the biggest changes recently is, is one in manufacturing. So being able to like 3d print stuff and make things on demand, uh, with, with rapid adjustments is, um, much more accessible than it used to be. You know, I saw the other day, like a guy like 3d printed a Lego hand for his, his hand prosthetic. It was just a life-size Lego hand. And then he 3d printed a Lego mug. It was just, just, you know, just fun stuff, but you can also take that the other direction and you can make, you know, like articulated hands at home, um, which is pretty wild. And then as far back as I want to say the seventies or eighties, we were looking at, uh, putting sensors on the skin to detect nerve impulses to help to control some of these functions. Uh, but also understanding that like mechanical items wear out our bodies adapt to the stresses that we place on them, thankfully. So as we exercise and we train, like our bodies can actually, uh, you can get calluses on your hand, you can get bigger muscles, your bone density can increase and so on. And for the prosthetic that doesn't happen, right? Cause they're not living organisms. They are subject to mechanical failure uh, and wear and tear much more so than, than the organic uh, component is. Um, and then over the past uh, decade or so, we've seen a lot more going on with like brain computer interfaces, um, which I am not an expert in by any means. Um, but inter- getting the central nervous system now instead of the peripheral nervous system using, you know, skin contact sensors, getting this, the central nervous system to interface with some kind of system that can then transit that into physical action, right? So like, you know, controlling a mouse cursor with your brain and then, okay, well, you're controlling a mouse cursor. Can you control a prosthetic arm? Yeah. Can you do that at a distance across the country? Yeah. Because that kind of stuff is, is feasible and it's being uh, developed and polished right now. Um, yeah, and I and I have seen a little bit of that technology. Um, I, I don't know how soon it's going to hit like the general market, but I'm seeing some celebrities kind of getting um, either like in like surgical implants or non-invasive. Like I don't know how they even work or if you know how they work, but it's like I have seen the ones where they can control a mouse on a computer screen. I just think yeah. that's absolutely crazy that we're starting to see the human and the machine sort of merging together. Yeah, and I think. I think we have to give a lot of credit to the nervous system on, the, on these trusts because it's, it's pretty rare that it's just plug and play where you just, you know, plug the thing in and then suddenly you go like oftentimes there's a bit of a training or a calibration phase. And, and a lot of that has to do with how much can the nervous system learn to use the neuroprosthetic, right? Um, how much can it interface or how, how much can it with, with whatever feedback you're getting? Can you 
if you couldn't see the mouse cursor, you wouldn't be able to train yourself to move the mouse cursor, right? That, that kind of coordination and control would be important. Um, and that is something that I think is getting further and further along. Um, but then the, the question also remains like, how do you get that to interface physically with the human in a way that is meaningful? Um, yeah. So tell me, tell me more about that because my, um, you know, bachelor degree science level understanding of how the nervous system works is it works in binary, just like a computer. So our nervous system impulses are similar to computer code. So do they have to like sync up our organic electronic signals with a computer interface? Like, do you know how that process starts to work? Can, or at least could you break it down in a digestible way for us? Yeah, I think the the idea that the, the brain and the nervous system kind of functions as a computer, and again, I'm not a neurologist, I'm not an electrical engineer, so take this with a grain of salt. Um, but the idea that that our nervous system kind of functions on binary is based on the principle that a, that a neuron, when it depolarizes and sends a signal and action potential down its membrane, it either does it or it doesn't. It either depolarizes entirely or it does not depolarize at all. Um, as a result, you kind of get an on or off or a zero or a one, right? Um, but all things told, as all of that kind of adds up over time, you have summation of signals, you have that either happening over space, what we call spatial summation, where if we're trying to activate like a, a larger muscle group or something like that, we're going to have a lot of neurons over in a large area of the brain going down and, 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 uh, and stimulating a muscle or temporal summation where we have things firing over and over and over uh, to build up a bigger signal and so on. And ultimately that turns into, my understanding, it's more of actually more of an analog signal that then has to be processed using signal processing algorithms in the computer and translated into the computer language. Um, wow. But again, I'm not not at all an expert on that. I may have made like 100 different errors in the you know 50 words that <laughs> I said there. Um, but uh, it's, but it, it's a The challenge. general summary... Yeah. So the general summary is our brain sends a signal. It has to be translated through the computer before the machine can interpret it. So it's like the computer is almost working as sort of like a like a converter between the organic signals and the machine signals. And the challenge then is to just sort of take these two different um, command languages, the human brain, which can send a signal, and then the machine, which is receiving the signal and get those signals to sync up. So you mentioned something earlier about the skin sensors. Yeah. Is that something that we're using in prosthetics? Are we using skin sensors in like, if I have one of those skin sensors you mentioned, like on my hand, Mm -hmm. is that something that we'd be using in some kind of like an exosuit, like a Tony Stark type thing? Uh, Potentially, but they're finicky. So anytime you have a, excuse me, anytime you have like an EMG sensor and some kind of sensor on the skin, the small shifts in in where the tension is on the skin can change the sen- can change the signal going into the sensor. Um, how sweaty you are can change the signal going into the sensor. How much pressure there is on it can change that. So if your muscles underneath it are tighter versus looser, that can change uh, the quality of the signal. If you're wearing clothing and that presses and rubs against it, weird. So there's there's a lot of just mechanical uh, concerns and, and processing the signals and keeping them clean. Um, can be quite a challenge. And I'm not sure exactly how, how well we've been able to handle that. Um, but for the most part, it, it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, this can happen. We can use these to control things. We've demonstrated that for a couple of decades. But keeping it robust enough that it actually stays functional and practical, and like if we're talking about military, like field environments, yeah, probably not there yet. Okay. And that would probably be why, you know, circling it back to Elysium. So Matt Damon's character, he was in an he was in a simple exosuit, which was drilled into him. And it wasn't something that he was um he didn't have any fancy skin sensors. It was kind of just plugged into his spine. Yeah, it, was, it was like a matrix kind of like plugged into the, the base of his brain there. Yeah, yeah. Um I am totally having a brain fart right now, but the 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 base of the brain is your or like is your muscle functions and the front of your brain is your cognitive function more so right <laughs> uh to, to an extent yeah frontal lobe is like executive function and planning and then and as it moves back you're going to get into uh like some motor planning you do actually have the motor cortex that kind of sits about where my headphones are sitting right here um you have the sensory cortex and then they kind of you have like a map of the body laid out right there and so from a standpoint of like control and initiation of movement and feedback you're going to get a lot of that out of that parietal lobe 
uh, cerebellum is going to be a lot more of that coordination kind of smoothing out the signals so that, you know, you're not just like flailing around uncontrollably with mm-hmm. much too large uh, amplitude. So it would make sense to have it plugged into that lower kind of brainstem section. Yeah. And ultimately, like that's 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 where the outflow is going to be. Right. So if you plug in right there and you, even if you're not disrupting the spinal cord proper, you can maybe with this fancy future tech, they can monitor the signals going down and figure out which tracks they're going to and um, and, and play from there. So that's that's kind of what I'm guessing they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. So with current um, physical therapy and just, I guess, either human augmentation or rehab, where are these brain chips being put right now? Um, in humans, <laughs> I'm, uh, I, I remember about a decade ago, we started experimenting with, um, spinal cord stimulators. So lower lumbar, um, you know, we had to take some guys through, um, this is before I was a PT, I was working in a, as a tech in a, uh, a spinal cord clinic, but we had to take some patients through extensive amounts of rehab because the spinal cord has some of its own, like, pro- like motor programs. Uh, it has what are called central pattern generators that can reproduce like walking and stuff like that, right? It's like um, Dr. Edgerton was famous for like, you know, severing the spinal cord of a cat up in the neck and putting it on a treadmill. You know, it could still, by reflex, generate the gait pattern along the treadmill because the spinal cord is intact and the spinal cord is where those reflexive patterns are stored. Um, and so we had That's to- amazing. So we had to go through these processes of like, okay, stimulate the crap out of the periphery and see if we can get those, those reflex, those central pattern generators firing. We basically had to show like, yeah, no, we're not making gains with this. And then that way, when we put an implant in there, not we, but when, you know, Susan Harkema and those guys uh, in Kentucky put the, put the implant in there, they could say, well, any changes that happened were due to the implant. And it was pretty cool because we, we saw some guys with you know, complete spinal cord injuries, uh, regain the ability to stand, um, regain control of like bowel and bladder uh, and, and some other cool stuff. And that was, that was 10 or 11 years yeah, I was going to say that was about a decade ago. So yeah. it sounds like we've made some really amazing advancements for people who have had paralysis, either quadriplegic or paraplegic injuries. Yeah. The the trick is like, there's still a really long way to go. And because of the trauma of, you know, implanting something on somebody's nervous system, like there's potential to do damage each time you touch it. And so if you want to let you Hardware upgrades are not one of those things where it's like, hey, I'm just going to remove this one and put a new one. You're going to introduce scar tissue, and you, you know that's why you haven't seen these rolled out to populations in mass because they're still very much in the testing phases, trying to figure out, you know, what can we really, what what gives us the best bang for the buck, you know, ethically uh, as well as medically. Um, and so that's where you know, as we move like further up the spinal cord, like up into the the brain, like Neuralink implants, which I honestly know very little about. Um, you know, I, I get a little bit, not a little bit, I get, I get really, uh, disconcerted when people start saying like, yeah, I'm just going to go put a microchip in my brain and, you know, be some kind of superhuman. It's like, uh, it's like injecting. I know it's the dream. It's like, we, we, we were all raised on the matrix and it's like, I just want to upload elite level Kung Fu skills into my brain. Yeah. Just elite, at least level, elite level, uh, just podcasting skills would probably be my go-to for this. <laughs> um, so that's interesting. So, so as far as the Matt Damon suit, yeah. the we, I mean, we kind of talked about his um, at least the electronic interface a little bit. But as far as the rest of the suit goes, are is that at all feasible or or realistic or similar to what's going on right now? Are they drilling in exosuits into bones? Are we utilizing exosuits much or a lot of our augmentation more inside the body interior. Yeah. Um, as, as far as that goes, um, one of the things that, that gave me pause when I was looking at the movie, you know, because Matt Damon, of course, gets the, gets the exosuit or gets the exoskeleton. Um, but he gets that because there's obviously there's a big bad, right? There's a big bad guy and he's got a similar one. He's, you know, some kind of, you know, black ops, special forces kind of guy and he's got his own exoskeleton and you know to the point where he's got to wear this like giant jedi robe to go out in public because otherwise he'd have like you know metal apparatus sticking out all over the place looks wonky as i'll get out but what struck me is like what are are the ethics of doing this to a human um you know if we're going to be drilling this this mechanical apparatus into somebody's skeleton and then dealing with 
the ramifications of that. Like, you know, my part of my job right now is to make sure like, Hey, we need to take care of our people, right? The human, uh, not just creating a, you know, super soldier, but actually like, taking care of them because we, we want to make sure that we have good people and people are more important than hardware ultimately is what it, what is what it boils down to. But in this case, in the case of Elysium, like they're really focusing on the hardware and the person is really just kind of a mechanism, like a man in the loop kind of thing, almost like to interrupt the AI thing, which could be a, which I know you covered in a completely separate episode, but, um, so the, the ethical piece in Elysium actually kind of goes away because they've got these, you know, these, these magical, uh, fix all medical beds. You know, you lay down in this bed and you, know, you get your face blown off by a grenade or whatever. Somehow your brain is still intact and they just kind of stitch you back together using, you know, this thing that's like almost like from the fifth element. Um, I was just going to say fifth yeah. element. I, 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 I think I so wanted to do an episode. I think, that. I think the fifth element did it better. Um, but the, you know, the idea of like using these, some of these beds for like, you know, like the cosmetic, like scarification, like the tattoos and stuff that they put on their bodies and kind of, kind of highlights like some of the, some of the socioeconomic disparities in Elysium a little bit better, which is kind of cool, uh, kind of a nice touch. But um, when you have something like that, that can literally just like heal anything, but only the elite people have access to it. The ethical concerns of, you know, screwing up somebody's body permanently kind of go away. Because um, you could yeah. just, you know, at the suit they gave Matt Damon still had, you know, still had bio on it from the last person that they tore it out of. You know, still had hair and guts and skin and stuff attached to it in some places <laughs> when he went into the chop shop. Um, so from a standpoint of right now and, and realism, right? If we don't have those, those, you know, magical beds that can heal any condition, I think ethically it gets, gets you into a really rocky place when you're looking at drilling something into somebody's skeleton when they don't have like an amputation, um, or some other major, uh, some other major disability associated with that. Um, the- because yeah, and it- it is interesting though, because it's like when you're talking about quality of life for someone who's paralyzed, it's not just the lack of mobility. Because if you do, you know, I, I don't know the right install. <laughs> if you do like install something to the external of their body, that changes their entire life from the clothes they wear to their mm-hmm. ability to maneuver to just like you know, just even the comfort of laying next to the person yeah. they love. It changes. It changes everything about being a human. Yeah. So I could definitely see that being. A massive concern and that would be a big decision and trade-off for for someone if they're like hey you can get your mobility back but now you have this thing attached to you right it and we've changed we've, everything we've seen that with with things like uh diaphragmatic pacers right it's like most people are familiar with pacemakers right they can implant this thing under your collarbone and it's got some leads that go down and basically your heart gets out of rhythm it'll shock it back into rhythm you know it's, it's uh they say watch they're fantastic there is a device and I don't know where it stands in terms of testing right now. My last exposure to it was about 10 years ago as well, uh, called a diaphragmatic pacer, where you have somebody who has a spinal cord injury above the level of a phrenic nerve, which innervates the diaphragm. So think like upper cervical spinal cord injury, and they can't breathe on their own. And so they put this, basically they put electrodes, much like you would put muscle stem on you know, a muscle that you're rehabbing. They put those electrodes on top of the diaphragm to get the diaphragm to contract so that you can not be on a ventilator. Right, so instead of having a machine uh, that that breathes for you through a tracheostomy here, like you can actually just take breaths by electrically stimulating your diaphragm. But then you get into the control issue, right? That that interface of like, okay, well, what if I'm swallowing something, and I don't want the machine to inhale for me, right? Um, so you get into some similar issues there, where okay, the risk of aspiration goes up. Now if I've got something drilled into your body, the risk of infection goes up. Right, osteomyelitis, an infection inside of a bone, is can be devastating, and very, very hard to come back from that. You lose not just a lot of the bone mass, but you lose a lot of conditioning as you're recovering, um, and that kills people. Um, so, when we're talking about drilling things in, there there are some uh, there are some prosthetic approaches. There's something called osteo osteo integration, where they can actually take like so rather than having just like a muscle and skin flap on the bottom of stump and typically the leg, um, they can have a rod bolted into the bone, um, that sticks out past that. And that kind of clips into the prosthetic. And so you get a much better mechanical interface. The energy transfer isn't having to go through soft tissue, like a, like a normal socket would, um, that can potentially make 
the wear a lot more comfortable. Um, and the problem with that, if you've ever like, you know, if you've ever like deboned a chicken or something like that, if you take a bone and you kind of split it lengthwise, like a wedge, it's a lot easier to break it. It's a lot easier to splay that open. And that's a much harder injury to recover from than a, a frank fracture or something. So when we're talking about screwing things into bones, like we got to be careful about what size of the screw we're talking about, what angle it's going into, what forces are we exposing it to during that time and so on. Um, mm-hmm. Well, there's a lot going into it. Yeah. Yeah. And those are things that I don't, you know, the, the, the average person isn't thinking about these things. The average person isn't thinking about, um, the life of somebody who has had one of these injuries and amputation or paralysis. And it's so interesting to really just truly think about the ethics of these and the quality of life issues, not just for, you know, soldiers, because this episode we are talking about the soldier augmentation, but also just regular people and improving their quality of life. And sometimes there can be really amazing advancements that do save your life, but it's like kind of at what cost. Right. An example I'm thinking of is when I was in um, undergrad in the anatomy lab and we had some heart cadavers mm-hmm. and we were looking at some early valve replacements. So the yep. earliest valve I've seen those same ones. Yeah. So they was like, it was like a, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. University of Utah. Woohoo. Um, yeah. Oh, what was his name? Nielsen? Mark Nielsen. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, that guy, you know, shout out to you, Mark Nielsen. I hope this episode gets back to you. That guy was such a great anatomy professor. Fantastic. Made... Fantastic. Oh yeah. 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 I think it's actually one of the highest break programs anyways. Uh, but yeah, so we, we held that same round old heart then. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing, it had a little cage yep. and it looked like a, like a metal like, like bar- a ball bearing. Yeah, like a ball bearing. Yep. Yep. Little bar wiring in the little metal cage. And that worked as a valve. So this was a replacement for a valve that that no longer worked. And it was a gravity assisted valve. So they couldn't lay down and they had to stand up all the time. And then the, the ball would just slide up to close the valve and down to open it. And it was that was the way that the heart now worked. But from what my memory serves me as is with those types of valve replacements, um, suicide actually went really high with those patients because for the rest of their life, they heard that valve click up, click down, click up, click down. And you heard and felt every single heartbeat and it would drive them crazy. So when we're talking about, yay, we saved their life, but at what cost? Yeah. Those are interesting ethics to consider. Yeah. Reality check. The science of fiction. Coming back to Elysium, looking back at the, the suit they bolted into Matt Damon, like it's actually kind of pretty comprehensive. Like they they bolted it down into each of the fingers, and these are tiny, tiny bones. Like there's not a lot of room for uh, there's not a lot of room for hardware in here. Uh, and there's a scene, you know, at one point he's like, "Why would you wear a robot suit if you're not going to rip a robot's head off?" And so he's you know he's grabbing some robot's head and rips its head off. But like if you've ever torn your calluses in a deadlift, uh. Yes. Right. There's, there's there's not much going on on the the, the palm side of, of, of the hands there from a prosthetic standpoint. Like, yeah, this the suit might take some of the brunt of that, but like you're going to shear off all the flesh uh, on this other side. So some of the interface stuff, you know, it, it leaves some, you know, it takes some liberties. The where we do see some interesting stuff is um, in like early like limb salvage surgery, right? So like somebody gets a combat injury or a traumatic injury. And we're trying to save the limb that would otherwise be amputated, right? So like lower extremity stuff. And they'll, they can, you know, the, the Centers for the Intrepid down here in San Antonio has pioneered a lot of this stuff. Um, this is also where like BFR training, your blood flow restriction training came and came to the fore, trying to, to work with these people to save, you know, modern medicine is saving limbs rather than just like chopping them off and giving everybody a prosthetic, all the problems that come with prosthetics. Mm-hmm. But they would... They would bolt a cage around the bones, trying to get the bones to kind of migrate and and align back together so they could heal up. But we also know the bones need a certain amount of load. And so, you know, you get some cowboy surgeons and, and PTs out there that are saying, okay, well, you know, typically like if I've got somebody like in a, an RAF, an open reduction external fixed state or uh, internal fixation or an external fixation in this case, like I'm not going to be putting much weight through that because I don't want to disrupt anything screws in there. I don't want those to migrate out or whatever. But they started loading these people up while they had these cages around their legs um, and seeing those bones actually start to, starting to knit together and become healthier as a result. But that took time, right? Um, yeah. So I think I think there is some possibility of having a suit that or having some components of your body that are actually drilled into you that you are then able to load and, 
and and work with. But again, the interface of like, okay, how do I know that hardware is interacting with my my hardware or, or you know the squishy stuff? Um, and then how do I know that I'm controlling it appropriately and not overdoing things? In the world of Elysium, you can kind of gloss over that. You screw it up, you just throw them in one of those magic beds and it heals everything. Uh, yeah, in these days, it's... Eh. Yeah, we have that's this. That's the yeah. lens. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. I always think of this is not a sci-fi movie. So believe it or not, I actually do watch other genres on occasion. And I'm just totally thinking of the amputation scene on Master and Commander, which oh, is another yeah. amazing movie Fantastic. with the. Yeah. Oh, such a great movie. Um, But yeah, I'm just like, man, that was that was life back then. And now it's just it's so much different. We actually think about germs <laughs> yeah, and all those different things. So, um. Yeah, that's so interesting. So, so is there um, in in the field of combat, how? Because I'm just I'm still a little bit fixated on what you said about ripping the head off and the skin and the calluses. Yep. Um, do you deal much? Because the skin is the biggest organ in the body. Yep. So, in the rehab world, are you more focused on skeletal muscle, or do you go into soft tissue like skin? Is that much of a concern? Actually, uh, skin is a huge concern. Yes, and it's. Honestly, not that much different than it was back in World War One, right? We're dealing with trench foot. Um, we're preventing it, really. So you're gonna have to tell me what trench foot is. I I was guessing what it is. Yeah. But... So you imagine trenches, right? It's so like the gutters in a on a on a road. They're gonna accumulate water any chance that they get. Same if you're dealing with trenches in the in the environment. But if you're just rucking and running and that kind of stuff, moving through mud and moisture, like if you get moisture in your boots and you don't change your socks, you don't keep them clean, the skin well, you know, just like you stay in the bathtub too long, like your fingers kind of start to get, you know, the, the, that that uh, the the wrinkles you get in your skin is actually a neural response. That's not a tissue level response. If you if you sever the nerve to a finger, it's not going to get that that pruning. Oh, okay, um, okay. But if you over soak it, right? Like, like if you leave a, a like a waterproof bandaid on or something like that, the skin will actually like turn white. Uh, it's called maceration, and that that becomes now very uh, very easy to like slough off. And so if you yeah. do that same same thing in the, in the boot. You're moving, you get you got a 15 mile ruck or something like that. Yeah, that skin becomes a huge factor. Um, in some of our selection courses, you know, you've seen some really uh seen some really interesting um and significant levels of skin breakdown. Um, are calluses are calluses desirable to help protect the foot in this scenario? Or are calluses do calluses make the foot more vulnerable? Because I could see it getting maybe ripped off easier. Up, up to a point. Yeah. So it's it's kind of a it's it's an adaptive response. It's it's the it's the said principle, the specific specific adaptation to impose demand. Like if you go in with no calluses whatsoever, it's a lot like more likely that you're going to get blisters. But if you got your calluses doing something similar to the activity that you're doing, like odds are you like skin's going to toughen up and you're going to be okay. Kind of like uh, you know, if you just take care of your hands, if you're doing a lot of manual labor, the likelihood of you tearing a callus if you actually take care of your calluses is pretty slim. Same with the feet. Yeah. So because I do know a lot of my listeners are athletes, because my background is in strength and conditioning and strongman and whatnot, um, this is an interesting one. So let's kind of circle back to that deadlift hand. Sure. Um, this, sorry, for those of you who are squeamish, this is probably not the episode for you guys. We're talking about all the, all the skin stuff. Um, I, I was actually at a strongman competition with a friend of mine. Um, you may know Connor Gordon, and he uh, degloved his palm on a yeah on a farmer carry um went to pick it up it had been in the hot sun all day it was a really narrow handle it didn't deglove the entire hand it was probably just like maybe mid palm through the fingers it ripped the whole callus off so in that case he did build up those calluses through deadlifting but it was the deadlift basically that that made that callus so vulnerable and ripped the whole thing off so you said that that the calluses can be really helpful if it's built up in the same form, but in this specific case, it was yeah. not helpful for him to have that big callus. Yeah, there's there's always a there's always a threshold where tissue will fill, right? And so if you combine heat um, and focus, right, it's like a really narrow handle, right? This is kind of like if you imagine like trying to drive a nail in backwards. With the broad head, you're not going to be able to penetrate as far into the wood. Whereas you turn it around, so you got the sharp, pointy end. You have less surface area. You can push in through that with the same amount of force, same swing of the hammer. You can get a lot more damage into that wood. You can, you can drive that nail in further. Same kind of thing with with uh, farmers' carriers or with, or with uh, deadlifts or something like that. You know, we we 
the, the Spokane Highland Games, for example, there was a there's a farmer's carry event where you do it with uh, tractor weights. And it's just max distance. And the tractor weights, like the handle is literally rebar. And so it's, you know, it's not only very narrow, it's it's got some edges to it, right? That further mm-hmm. focus that pressure. Um, you know, if we're talking about you know, protecting somebody from a bullet, right? The body armor's purpose is to spread out that little teeny point that focuses all that kinetic energy into a broader surface area. So it's, it's just a hit, right? Uh, it's less than one kilocalorie of energy from a th- uh, from a seven six two round. Um, but you know, you focus that on a tiny little tiny little spot, going very fast, so you can cause a lot of damage. So when we're training, what we try to do, if we if we're interested in preventing injury, we want to uh, either increase capacity or, or mitigate the load. Uh, and if you're not doing one of those two things, you're not doing anything to change injury risk. Um, the, so yeah, that's, that's really what it boils down to. If you take like a hundred thousand foot view of injury. So in the, in the context of calluses and that kind of stuff, you still need to mitigate load to a certain extent, right? Like I'm not going to, like a callus is not going to make my hand invincible to a chainsaw, you know, as an extreme example. But if I don't have any calluses whatsoever and I go pick up a sharp, sharply neural deadlift bar, then yeah, I can, I can tear my hand open pretty easily there. And it's a matter of... Diminishing returns out to a certain point. So would it be advantageous for soldiers or operators or anybody really, even firefighters, policemen, anybody who has any level of tactical job or contracting job, like construction workers, for them to do their physical fitness training in the gear they would wear? So for example, if you are wearing combat boots in your job, would you want to do your runs and your workouts wearing those same combat boots so that the foot and body is adapted to that? That's a very interesting question. And to a certain extent, yes. Um, not universally, because it depends on what you're training for. So if the intent of the training is to say, uh, boost aerobic conditioning, right? And you happen to be in an environment like San Antonio, where it gets very hot and humid very quickly. If I'm doing that in full gear, okay, I'm going to have the potential that a lot of my guys are going to go down with a heat stroke as opposed to being able to actually train the aerobic system. Um, and so you have to kind of just, you have to kind of parse out what is the intent of the training and make sure that you're doing things that support that intent rather than just like making it close to operations, making it suck. You know, that, that kind of stuff is uh, a little bit misguided. You need to be looking at what system you're trying Thanks. to cause the adaptation in and make sure that you're optimizing that adaptation because you can't do everything at once, right? Like I can't, you know, I can't jump on a force plate and get in this, get a sense for what my aerobic conditioning is. It's just a different system. Um, so if you have a specific intent and you know exactly what kind of adaptations you're trying to elicit, then yeah, you want to, you want to create as, as close to an environment as you can that, that allows you to get that adaptation. There was a study done, I want to say it was by, uh, Robin Orr down in Australia. They were looking at, uh, tactical police forces, like specialist police forces, and they had them run in a, um, like an obstacle course or something like that, they had them run it both in their kit and slick, right? So, so no equipment and then wearing your, your typical mission garb. And then at the end of this, you know, pretty high aerobic load. And at the end of this, they would shoot. And what they found in this case was that though the workload was higher, uh, obviously when they were wearing more gear, uh, it was a course they were somewhat familiar with. So when they were running it slick, I, I don't think they were running it that much faster, right? Because they kind of knew the pacing that they had to go through. But at the end of the course, without their kit, they were less fatigued, heart rates were lower and so on. They actually shot worse when they were slick versus when they were in their gear. Interesting. Because from a control standpoint, from a coordination standpoint, going back to this other piece, the specificity of training took over because they were accustomed to having those shooting drills happen when they had this extra weight on them. They could brace the weapons differently and so on. Um, so so there's, there's a time and a place, definitely. Uh, but it, it has to do with the specific intent of what you're trying to train. Wow. I, and you know, it's like, it's a, uh, because this is something that I have studied to a degree, it makes so much sense. And it's so obvious when you articulate it that way, but it's, it's really something that we should be considering, not just for tactical performance, but also for athletic performance and just day-to-day people living their lives. You know, if mm-hmm. you're, uh, you know, doing literally anything, you want to be able to do it well. And, you know, kind of thinking about as we're advancing human augmentation in special warfare, 
I can really see how maybe some of these potential adaptations could actually backfire in a lot of ways. Because if we're thinking about um, augmenting a human in a non-rehab way, like if we're just trying to make them better, like even just thinking about it in like like a like a deadlift belt, like if you're wearing a belt for deadlifts and squats, that's I would say that that's a form of augmentation, external augmentation. You're able to give your abdominal wall something to brace against. And yeah. I've used this example before, just for those of you listening, it would be the equivalent of if you're trying to move furniture in your house and you're just pushing against a couch versus if you put your foot against a wall and then you push the couch, like sure. that belt gives you that abdominal wall to something to brace against. Same thing with external knee sleeves. So it's like, we're already doing this augmentation to some degree, but if we are training um, tactical soldiers with certain external augmentation that can totally change their ability to perform in a very intense setting. Is that correct? Yeah. And so you want to, you want to train somewhat how you fight, but at the same time, if you're trying to maximize adaptation for a given system, you want to bias that system, right? So if, if you're, if your priority is, Hey, let's get through the shoot house faster. Let's, let's work on our shooting skills and our, our team coordination. Then yeah, you're going to want to be kitted up. you want to be able to coordinate and communicate with your guys as, as well as you would in the field. If you're just looking to increase, you know, aerobic capacity, you might need to just keep it very simple. You really don't necessarily need, uh, all the extra bells and whistles. Like you don't need to be fully kitted up for every run that you go on. Um, from a standpoint of, of augmentation, I mean, the, the examples that you brought up, you know, knee sleeves in the belly, you can always take those off, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, a suit that's drilled into your skeleton like Matt Damon had here, these days you can't, right? Like we don't have those, those magic medical beds. So I think where where we're seeing the trend now is is really um, keeping the man in the loop from a distance. So that's where we're looking at drones for reconnaissance as well as for warfare. We're seeing those used extensively in Ukraine. Uh, first-person video, uh, one-way uh, munitions and loitering munitions, and now they're you know they're they're looking at you know uh, loyal wingman AI-powered drones that that fly alongside fighters and bombers, and these are considered more attributable, right? We can sacrifice these, we can send them on a suicide mission if we really need to, because the human is more important than the hardware, and if we're just losing hardware, you now we kept the operator. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I, and I love that we're there, that we're moving that direction and that our values are, I mean, it, it's war. War's yes. never pretty or glamorous or, you know, I, I was going to say good, but it's like, sometimes I feel like it, it you know, it is necessary, but um, it's so nice to see that we're really trying to minimize the lives lost or even limbs or, you know, just trauma to the human, to the human. Um, Because I was going to ask you, so are we seeing any kind of enhancements that are removable, like any kind of human augmentation happening in warfare that they can put on or take off, whether it be neurological, an exosuit, Mm. one of sensors? The the most that I've seen on that front has really been like focused on like trying to augment recovery. Um, But... uh, I think there's a lot to be said for mastering the basics for a lot of this stuff. And that's where you get into the fundamentals of sleep, nutrition, uh, proper programming, stress management, and that kind of stuff. If you master those and then any other little thing, you know, whether that's a, whether that's a normal tech or an ice bath or whatever, you know, getting a certain amount of sunlight at a certain hour or whatever, uh, like you're going to, those are going to make minuscule changes in comparison to big rocks. Um, and I think part of the, part of the problem too is that like this technology has come along so fast right where we're so reliant on you know devices and all this other stuff they haven't this like this has not been part of my life my entire life right and i did not grow up with it for, in generations for those of you listening for those of you listening he's holding up a cell phone yeah yeah sorry um so you know when we're staring at screens and we're, we're interacting you know like like you and i are across you know a couple thousand miles um like how how much are we how much have we adapted to being able to handle that as a species, you know, um, and how much of that is getting in the way of some of these fundamentals that we should be taking care of otherwise, right? Meaningful relationships, yeah. sleep, sleep hygiene, right? Getting off screens before bedtime, um, and quality nutrition and all of that stuff. Like society has changed so much, like the, that we as humans are almost struggling. As human organisms, right, are kind of struggling to kind of keep up with that. 
And that can be a limit, a bigger limiting factor than any of the fancy whiz bang stuff can ever touch. And I'm so glad you mentioned that because it is really interesting how we we kind of forget that we do have a lot of these, I guess for lack of a better word, we do have a lot of these advanced augmentations already built into us. Yeah. I'm wearing my Aura Ring super high-tech advanced sleep tracker right now, but yeah. I also have this really advanced bags under my eyes that show up when I've got <laughs> low-quality sleep. So it's like, whoa, I've detected yeah. low-quality sleep today. I'm bloodshot. Yeah. I can't like, think. It's like... My, my mattress, my watch, and my phone track my sleep. And I've, it's got to the point I stopped paying attention to it because for me, it's like it's an it's a nocebo, right? I might wake up feeling fine in my you know in my my watch and my apps or whatever beeping at me telling me like oh your you know, your sleep was awful. It's like well yeah I feel good. I'm still going to go train. I'm still going to you know make the best of the day. But if I if I if I outsource all of my personal judgment to devices uh, and to external features, then I'm going to suffer as a result, and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm I'm causing problems for myself. And I think that's where you know if, if we look at needing these mechanical enhancements to augment soldiers like really we what we really need to do is is give them a tool we're great at using tools but i never want to internalize what's going on on the other side of a drone right i never want that entirely attached to me or my guys i want it out there somewhere that i can use as a tool it can provide information it can provide intelligence um it can you know extend my reach but it's never going to affect my adaptation to, to what I'm training and what I'm trying to do day to day. That said, there are some, still some adaptations. Like we see we, you know, interesting cases of PTSD in, in drone warfare operators, right? Um, very far away, like, but they've got eyes on close up of somebody that they're dropping a bomb on. Um, and, you know, that, that comes with a certain psychological cost for each individual. And uh, we're still trying to come up with the ramifications of that and not a psychologist, but it's it's something that we have to factor into the whole picture of the human organism and the warfighter. Mm-hmm. Well, you can even think back to our War Games episode with uh, Noah Healy, where we were talking about the opening scene in the movie War Games, where they had to flip the switch for the nuclear bomb. And the one guy, because it's the, the two-man team, and the one guy was like, I am not about to kill 20 million people without a phone call and confirmation. Like, it's mm-hmm. just like, there is that psychological thing. And he was in a windowless box. He couldn't see them, but it's still just knowing the implications, which is just kind of the beauty of, of humanity. I think that I, th- I I do believe that humans are inherently good and that we do inherently have compassion and empathy for each other. Because if you really do look at humankind, every single one of us is more alike than we are different. And we can experience empathy and compassion for people who are very different from us, even if they're on the other side of the battlefield. And that's that's kind of beautiful. But thinking about like outsourcing our, you know, with my sleep tracker, outsourcing it versus keeping it as yourself, I'm kind of even thinking about um, just the quality of life for people who've experienced um, like paralysis or uh, amputation and thinking about outsourcing their care. It's like, all right, we're going to do all this rehab and we're going to get you all these fancy new limbs and tools and all these things. But it's when in reality, if you think about just Maslow's hierarchy of needs, a lot of people who have experienced trauma, the more so than losing their limb, one of the biggest things they lose is their social equity and their ability to be who they are. And so maybe instead of having them have 100% of the focus on the leg that was lost, maybe there could be more of a reintegration of them back into the person that they've always been. Things like adaptive adaptive, um, sports. You know, we're seeing, I think we're seeing adaptive sports become a lot bigger than they've ever been oh yeah wheelchair rugby and wheelchair basketball those are awesome to watch like go watch murder ball it's amazing uh about, yeah. about wheelchair rugby it's 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 impressive put it that way oh um, they're they are some of the coolest athletes yeah. ever to watch yeah. and i appreciate magnus for magnuson um four-time world's strongest man he's he's used a lot of his um power and prestige to really tr- like he's put all of his focus into adaptive strongman so he runs the world's strongest disabled man mm-hmm. and you see some of the most impressive feats of strength come out of that because it's like this guy's got one arm and he's doing way more than yeah a you know able-bodied guy is supposed to be able to do and i think just yeah. like psychologically if you're able to keep that person um just sort of like emotionally and socially um lifted up by their community their ability to like sort of like hyper compensate they become superhumans in so many ways yeah it's it's really a testament to the 
um, the resilience of the human spirit when we let the human spirit do its thing. Um, one of the most impressive people I've ever met was a patient that I was working with. Uh, and this is well after an industrial accident. So I was only working with them for, uh, uh, more of a, like a, like an illness really, and just kind of helping them with reconditioning, but they had lost three limbs in an industrial accident, both arms and one leg and suffered a spinal cord injury all at once oh. and maintained a an impressive amount of functional independence, but had a supportive family, was able to, you know, have children and all this other stuff. And, and just hearing about how rich this person's life was was just astounding to me. And I, I say that with, you know, a certain amount of respect because when we do talk about these topics and we bring up these individuals who have gone through these things, it's very easy for us to be like, wow, you're so inspirational. It's like, that's not their job. Their job is not to make, be an inspiration for us. Their job is to make their lives as awesome as it is for them. That's really what it should be about. We can see that as an example of human potential and that's awesome, but they're not doing it for us, right? So- Put, yes. put that in perspective, um, be happy for them, but don't try to, I'm not sure what I'm trying to say, but don't, don't try to make their success about anything other than their success. It's not mm-hmm. for you. It's, it's an example that you can take and go do awesome stuff on your own. But, um, yeah, well, it's, it's, it's similar. It's almost similar to the people who film themselves giving the homeless food. It's just like people yeah. sometimes use charity and yeah. passion type things to, I don't know. It's just. Don't do that. It's weird. <laughs> yeah, you can, but you can. Um, it's it's but it, it. I think it's important to recognize beauty and the humanity when we and the, the the wonders of humanity when we do see it. Um, absolutely. And you know, sometimes if that involves ripping a robot's head off, awesome. <laughs> oh, this is so beautiful and cheesy. Look at us getting that little. <laughs> we're gonna have to make this our our Christmas episode. Um, but no, it's a. You know, it's cool to think, and I I don't know the soldier's name right now but his his quote has been popularized i've seen it on memes all over but he lost both legs in battle and people and he's you know very happy very rich life and people ask him how can you be so happy you lost both your legs and he's like how can you be so unhappy you have both of yours and it's just a reminder that um just psychologically speaking that there's just so much life to live and i actually heard a study can't quote it don't know if it's even real i heard somebody else who i respected quote this study to me but it was a happiness study and Mm -hmm. they tracked two different people they tracked amputees and they tracked um lottery winners over Mm -hmm. i think it was like a 20 or 30 or like it was a long time time span and what happened is immediately quality of life for the lottery winners their their reports of happiness and quality of life went way up whereas the amputees their reports went way down but over the 20 to 30 year span it actually inverted and the people who were the lottery winners they reported a lower quality of life um than the amputees ever did and the amputees reported a higher quality of life than the lottery winners ever did and i just think that there's probably a lot there's a lot more really interesting stuff behind that and i think that you know when we're talking about like humans and cyborgs and human augmentation it's like I, I part of the reason why I started this podcast is because I am very excited about the future and all the things that we can do to improve people's lives. But what I'm learning episode after episode talking to all my amazing guests is that, you know, kind of the most amazing parts of humanity are already with us. I'd agree with that. Oh, this is totally going to be our Christmas episode. So, <laughs> you know, get all the warm fuzzies. It's the season to be jolly and joyous. So, you know, I feel like we've really kind of talked about a lot of the things that I was curious about. Mm-hmm. Was there any was there any other things that you were kind of thinking that you wanted to bring up about this episode or this topic that we haven't gotten to yet? Um, I mean, I would I think the biggest one, if people are interested in the topic of exoskeletons or bioignitation, neuroprosthetics, whatever it might be, um, take a physics class. <laughs> would be the biggest one, you know, uh, whether you're wearing an Iron Man suit and getting hit by an anti-tank shell uh, or whatever else, even if the suit locks it, like what's that going to do to the squishy stuff inside? Just the G forces, <laughs> right? Let's, let's just talk, let's just talk acceleration of matter, right? And, and, and the tensile or the elastic uh, forces going on there. You know, just, just take, just take some high, just over overarching physics lessons and, and figure out how that, that would work out. Um, and then look at 
situations outside of the application you're thinking about, right? So we're talking, you know, the initial context for this was like warfare, right? Uh, super soldiers or, you know, augmented soldiers. And think about what happens when there's no fighting happening. You still have a human attached. What are you going to do, right? You know, you think about like Miyamoto Musashi and, you know, being a, a renowned artist, not just the world's greatest samurai, that kind of thing. Like the warrior monk trope like sounds cheesy, but it's, it's kind of it's kind of cool. I think it's one of the best ways to remain balanced as a human who's, if you're training to do hard stuff, uh, is be able to appreciate or create beauty. And personally, I found one of the beauty in physics too. You're studying and, and darting out about the universe, science fiction, and this kind of stuff. But there's there's a lot more technical information out there that's available. I'm not publishing any of it myself. I'm just nerding out about it when I see it. But uh, don't let any of this discourage anybody from being a researcher, like there's, there's still so much that we don't know and so much that we can do better than we are doing right now. And, uh, there's, we only make those changes if people investigate them. Absolutely. And that's, uh, you know, I think it's just a really big call to action for either the next generation of researchers and scientists or people who are already involved to really, um, just remain excited about your field, remain excited about what you're doing, because everything collectively that we're doing as humans, we should be doing to improve the quality of life for our species as a whole. And if you look yeah. at our, my husband and I, we're watching Vikings right now. And it's like, we're watching some episodes and we're like, their lives were horrible back then. Like who? And then you see like these Viking bros in the gym, like, I want to be a Viking. I'm like, do you? Do you? I don't. I want to be I, especially as a woman, I'm like, I want to live in this century, in this country. I This is like the best water. that humanity's ever had it. Yeah, I like hot water. <laughs> I, like, I like coffee. I like, you know, it's like if you look at my spice cabinet, I live better than any king that has ever lived. <laughs> <laughs> I have cinnamon. I have a lot of cinnamon. <laughs> oh, man, I guess it's time for a reality check yeah, moment. Yeah, so here we go. So, Justin... If we are talking about the feasibility in Elysium of having a human who is enhanced with a cybernetic exoskeleton that offers them superhuman strength and agility from kind of a biomechanic and prosthetic perspective, where would you say that our reality check scores on from our one to five scale? I'm going to call and it. As a reminder. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, we've got pure fiction, speculative science, Fringe reality, emerging fact, and then science fact. And justice, drum roll. I just told you justice, Justin. Justin, drum roll. I'm going to say uh, the, the suits and stuff like that. I'm going to call that a fringe reality because we do have some osseous integration. We do have some brain-computer interfaces. We do have some exoskeleton concepts. None of them are fusing together to make what the what they're doing in Elysium, and I don't foresee them doing that. But in theory... You let ethics go completely. Yeah, it might be possible. <laughs> if you let ethics go, a lot of things can happen. Yeah, but we we already talked about the Nazis in the Dune episode, so uh, you guys can circle back to that one if you want. So that's uh, that's so interesting. It's really it's like conceptually, there's so much that we're capable of. But you know, like you said earlier in the episode, um, that's my dog. Everybody, his his he's like probably going to want to go for a walk soon. But the the ethics of it stand, it's like we aren't going in that direction because we are moving more towards drones. We're trying to protect the people and that's really cool. Yeah. All right, perfect. Well, Justin, is there any final thoughts that you want to share with us? Uh, yeah, I'm just, if anybody's sitting on a, you know, magic rehab and medical bed that heals everything, you know, just like share that with everyone, that'd be cool. And uh, don't put it up in a space station where nobody else can get it. Yeah, So don't be rude. Yeah, all right. Yeah, that's all I got. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And this yeah, is actually, you know what? This is going to be our last episode of the year. So thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in to our first calendar year of Reality Check. And I guess we're going to see everybody next year. Reality Check. The science of fiction. Hey, Reality Check fans. As we wrap up the first calendar year of our show, I wanted to take a moment and say thank you for being a listener. I felt moved by this episode, and in the spirit of giving, I wanted to take a moment and acknowledge disabled veterans. Without their sacrifice, I wouldn't have the luxury to ponder the future with you from the comfort of my living room. If you know a veteran, please reach out to them. Take a moment right now to text them and let them know that you're thinking of them. 
If you feel further compelled to support disabled veterans, please consider making a donation or volunteering for an organization that supports veterans. I will leave a list of organizations in the comments. Thank you again for listening to Reality Check, the science of fiction. I wish you all a happy holiday, Merry Christmas, a lovely winter, and a great new year.